The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. So I was in clinic when I got the call from the people who had done the biopsy telling me that it had come back positive for DCIS. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. This episode is based upon an article from the On Being a Patient section of the Annals of Internal Medicine. It appeared October 16th, 2019. The title is Fighter. The author is Dr. Kate Lolly, who is a palliative care physician who, at age 43, learned that she had breast cancer. This is her story. Kate, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Your story really moved me a lot and made me think a lot about my role as a physician and the importance of understanding patients. Why don't you set up the story by telling everybody before the story starts what your training had been and what type of jobs you were doing? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talking with you today. So I am and have been a palliative care physician. Before the events of my piece, I was working in Rhode Island at a health system primarily focusing on palliative care. And my particular work was at a hospital called Women and Infants, which had a strong focus on gynecologic and breast cancers. So a lot of what I did and still do to some extent is provide palliative care to women with advanced breast cancer or advanced gynecologic malignancies. So go ahead and tell the story about the fateful day that you found your diagnosis. So I was diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer just about two years ago now. I was actually seeing patients in clinic at Women and Infants, again, breast cancer patients, gynecologic cancer patients, and I had had a abnormal mammogram, I'd had a breast biopsy, but everyone always says, you know, the vast majority of those are benign, 80% are benign, I'm a young woman, right, like I have no family history, almost certainly it's going to be nothing. So that was sort of what I was hoping for. So I was in clinic when I got the call from the people who had done the biopsy telling me that it had come back positive for DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, which is initially what I had. And so I was sitting there with my nurse practitioner. We, you know, I'd practiced with a big multidisciplinary team and very much kind of fell apart while I was there, understandably so. And within seconds was set up for treatments at women and infants. That was the place I would get treated. It was the place with the woman I perceived to be the best breast surgeon in the state was. And so as opposed to most people who do the biopsy and the radiologists help you get connected, my colleague sitting around me immediately picked up the phone and and set me up with the breast surgeon the next day and brought in another colleague who had had a history of breast cancer, who didn't know and talked with me a little bit about what to expect and what happens next and how they often treat this. And within 24 hours, I was sitting with the breast surgeon with my husband kind of figuring out what comes next. 
So that started a long several months worth of surgeries and radiation. I underwent a mastectomy for extensive DCIS and was found that I had cancer on the other side via MRI. So I ended up getting a lumpectomy and then you know, a re-excision and then radiation and then reconstruction. So sort of four surgeries all kind of back to back, all at the place that I was working. Although I took time off, I was on medical leave for much of that. And sort of while I was doing all of this, I had, and this is what I wrote about in the analyst piece, I had applied for a job change in the months before I was diagnosed. I mean, amusingly, 30 days to the day before my biopsy, I sent in a CV to Dana-Farber because I was just interested in new opportunities and the opportunities that Dana-Farber had. So I had submitted my CV and then in the midst of all this, completely forgot about it because my job was not my priority at that time. So one week post-op for my mastectomy, the day I had my lumpectomy, to me. I was emailed about switching jobs and having an interview at Dana-Farber, which was a big moment for me and what I wrote about. So let's talk about two different things. We'll talk about the job interview, but let's first talk about when you finally were ready to go back and see patients, the dread you had, and how seeing a patient sort of flipped a switch for you. So a lot of what I would do before the cancer diagnosis is I would attend rounds with the oncologist in the morning and they would discuss all the patients that were in the hospital. And I would say, okay, you know, maybe I could help this one or they would ask me to see this patient. And so we would identify patients via this list. And that was very much when I got the diagnosis before I had really talked about it openly, like maybe, you know, the next few days, the idea of going and sitting at that list, it it occurred to me, I was like, I'm going to be on this list one day. If I get my surgery here, like I'm going to be on this list. I'm going to be one of these patients. And I will admit I almost fainted when that sort of thought hit me. And so I backed away from that. I even told people about my diagnosis. I went on medical leave. I backed away from the clinical work while I was going through all this. But I was very much thinking about what does that mean now that I'm one of the patients I treat? And I also, when I would get emails about tumor board, which I often would do, I'd sit there and I'd read these patient stories and it would often be patients with metastatic disease. And I would be like, did they start out like me? Like, what was their stage of diagnosis? How long did they have before it spread? And I would sit there and just like torture myself reading these stories about these patients. And as I thought about going back to work, whether it was at Women and Infants or whether it was here at Dana-Farber, I thought, am I going to be able to do this? Like, am I going to be able to care for these patients or am I just going to be so consumed with what's going to happen to me and what's my future that I'm not going to be able to treat these patients. And so it was very much something I worried about. I knew I had great support, great colleagues, and if I wanted to leave this population and see patients at a different hospital, I could. But I had always loved this work, loved the patients. I wanted to try. So my very first day back after all the surgeries, after everything, I attend those rounds and we identify a patient. And the one they asked me to help with is a 47-year-old with metastatic breast cancer who amusingly I had seen before. So at least I knew her, but like everything about this was exactly what I was worried about, right? She was just a couple of years older than me. It's metastatic breast. She has young kids, everything that's like, oh my God, is this me in a few years? I'll admit I sat there as I always do to prepare to go into the room. I read her chart and was finding my anxiety rising. I was like, what stage was she at diagnosis? How long ago was it? What kind of treatment did she have? What about her is different or the same for me? But then when I went into the room, it occurred to me that really when I talk with patients, I don't talk so much about their cancer, their diagnosis, or their even necessarily their treatments in huge 
huge detail. I talk about what's important to them and what they're worried about and what they're hoping for. And she and I talked about that, as I do with all of my patients. And it occurred to me that the sense of like, is this going to be me? Is this where I'm headed? Wasn't really what I was thinking about. I was thinking about her and her family, her fears, and what we can do to support her better and how to make sure she's feeling as good as she can to enjoy her time at home. And I really wasn't thinking about me or honestly about cancer at all. I was just thinking about her and how she dealt with this stuff. And so it was really with her, I think it being sort of the scary patient for me, that I realized I could do this work. And that, yes, there are definitely moments where it brings me back and I think about my own illness and I get worried. But generally, I don't. Generally, I'm really able to focus on my patients and what matters most to them. In any way, do you think you're different as a physician than you were three years ago? I'm definitely different. I mean, my whole life, I feel like I'm a different person in a lot of ways. You know, my whole life is different. How I think about things is different. When patients come in, honestly, almost every day, they'll say something that makes me think about my own experiences with cancer. But what I think is not like, oh God, mine might spread. What I think is, yeah, I understand why you're worried about that. I had a patient recently, a woman who with metastatic breast cancer, who was diagnosed in her early 40s. Now she's in her 60s. So it's some years out. And she was talking about her initial diagnosis, and she was talking about control and the lack of control that you get with a cancer diagnosis. And she said, when you get cancer, they say to you, come in Tuesday at nine o'clock. And you say, okay. And she's like, in your real life, someone says to you, come in Tuesday at nine o'clock. And you say, well, you know, I have other plans. I have to check my schedule. I have to make sure someone's watching the kids. And she's like, in this world, you're just like, fine, tell me what to do and I'll do it. If you told me to go up and do jumping jacks right now, I would do them. And that was something that resonated with me. And I was being greeted by my colleagues, my friends going out of their way to do everything for me. But still, it was show up at 10 o'clock, show up at this time, you're going to come here for this. They would give me the schedule and there was no asking. It was like, this is where you come. And it occurred to me that there had been a time two weeks before where I had a really busy schedule and I never would have been able to make these appointments. But I cleared it all and pretty much was like, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. There are definitely moments like that. They happen all the time where patients tell me about the struggles of going through cancer treatment or the fears around it that resonate very much with my own experiences. And while I don't share with patients that I have a history of breast cancer, I'm sure the questions that I ask around that are different because of my own personal experiences. I very much know what that feels like. I had a patient talking to me around the fear of radiation. She's like, you know, when that door closes and you're alone in that room, and I know what that feels like. So I'm able to ask questions I think are more pointed than I did before. So in that way, yes, I do think that I'm different. And I think I am much more in tune to what the patient experience is like. You start the story by saying how you used to hate the term fighter when it applied to cancer, and then you talk about the realization that you were a fighter. Could you sort of tell that? As I remember, it was on your job interview that you sort of had that realization. Yeah, that's kind of a thing in palliative care that we all hate the fighter language and terminology. There's lots of pieces written about it. People talk about it. And this is something I very much believed as well before my own diagnosis, that most of my patients will die from their cancer. You know, of course, some don't, but many will. And so this idea of like, oh, he lost his battle. Like, if only you would fight a little bit harder, you know, it implies some sort of failing on the part of the patient. So many of us in palliative care, myself included, felt like we should never use this language 
COVID, it's not the right language to use to talk about cancer or illness. And I very much felt that before I was diagnosed. But then I went through this diagnosis and I had gone through all these surgeries. I felt honestly eviscerated. I was off work. I was terrified about going back. I had not gone back yet to work. I didn't know if I'd be able to do the work that I have been doing. I didn't know if cancer was going to take that from me, if I would be so afraid of seeing myself and my patients that I wouldn't be able to do the work I had always done. I felt like I was just this girl sort of sitting in the chair in my home waiting for what comes next. And the person who I had been, this physician who was doing this work, I didn't know where she was. It didn't seem like I was still that person in my own head. So to get this interview, which seemed to me to be out of the blue, of course I had applied, but seemed to me to be out of the blue. And then to go in and meet all these people in my field who do the work that I do, like you could tell that they were able to see the palliative care doc who had been there before. They asked me about my work. They asked me about things I published. We talked about the field and things like that. And for them to sort of walk out of there and be like, they didn't see the girl who's stricken with cancer, who's just like overwhelmed by all of this. They saw Dr. Kate Lally, the palliative care physician. It felt like I was fighting this. It felt like I was fighting what cancer was trying to take away from me. And so even walking away, not having the job, not knowing that I would even come here, it just made me feel like this is what it means to fight, to be able to still be myself in the face of all of this. And so it made me really rethink the fighting analogy because I felt like it applied to me. And I had never really felt that before. Yeah, I guess the fight is fighting the journey rather than the outcome. It is. I feel like I have a personal professional identity that really felt threatened by cancer. Like, who am I? You know, is this going to take so much away from me? And to feel like, no, I can still be that person. I can still see the patients that I've always seen. I can still do the work that I've always done. People still want to hear what I have to say. And again, I don't think that an outsider might say, why did that feel like it was threatened to you? Why would that have changed? But it really did feel like I wasn't still there. I honestly kind of felt like I pulled the wool over their eyes. They still think I'm Kate Lally. They don't know everything that's happened. And then I had to step back and be like, no, actually, I'm still here. I'm still here and that's what they're seeing. And I think that was a very powerful moment for me that made me feel like I was fighting what cancer wanted to take away from me. That is just beautifully stated. What should our listeners learn from your story? What should I learn when I go to the bedside? What lessons do you want me to try to absorb? I think for me, a lot of the lessons were about what it's like to be on that other side. I have been sitting in a hospital bed on medication and physically not feeling well, feeling pain, feeling nauseous, and have to get bad news about, guess what, the cancer's on the other side. And and so that's another thing. You know, when I'm sitting with patients, and I'm, as I often am, I'm at the bedside in the hospital, and say the oncologist is breaking news, the cancer has spread things worse than we expected. And I'll look at that person, and I can imagine how they feel. You're nauseous, you're in pain, you're weak, and this stuff is just coming at you over and over again. And so I think many of us, I mean, I don't think you have to have a cancer diagnosis to know what that feels like. I think many of us have been at the bedside of family members, of loved ones. And I think it's just important for all of us to kind of remember that, which for me, this was the thing that really made me realize how hard it can be to be a patient and how we really don't think about what our patients are experiencing. We're often, okay, I've got to tell them this news. We've got to come up with this plan. And so it just can be really, really hard. And I will admit when I was getting that bad news and feeling totally overwhelmed. One of the fellows who I had actually trained and was so thrilled that she did this, I could see her looking at me and I could see her seeing me like getting anxious. I could hear anymore. I felt so terrible. 
And she looked over and said, you know what, maybe we should stop for right now. Let's take a little break. And I felt like that was so powerful. So I don't know exactly. I don't know that there's a particular direction that I could say to people, do this or don't do this. But I feel like for me, a lot of it is really remembering what it feels like to be in that bed and thinking about that as I talk with patients, as I break that bad news and thinking about how they're receiving it. Just to sort of wrap this up, and you and I talked about this previously, what kind of response have you gotten from people who've read this very powerful piece? So I've gotten lots of wonderful emails from people, you know, and a lot of just thank you for the story. I read it. I really enjoyed it. So I've got a lot of those, which have been wonderful. But in addition, I actually had a physician reach out to me who's going through breast cancer treatment herself. And she and I have connected. We've spoken on the phone. She is, I think, facing many of the same issues about what does this mean for me? She also deals with patients who have a serious illness. And so to me, it feels a little bit like I'm able to give back because there were so many women who shared with me when I was going through it, what to expect, what to think about. And so to have this woman reach out to me, which she did because of the piece, and to be able to build this connection to let her know what to expect from surgery, what to expect from radiation, you know, little tips for getting through these things, and to let her know that someone else has gone through on the other side and is building a career again. I think that's important to her because I think she's very much in this space of feeling like, what's next for me? All I can think about is the cancer. Yeah, I was talking to one of my colleagues, and we've had a number of former students and residents who, at the similar age to you, have had breast cancer. And then we've, as physician colleagues, have dealt with it. I think your story really strikes a chord with all of us who work with women physicians because we know the high rate of breast cancer. And understanding your story, I think, is really important for all of us. And I can't thank you enough for writing it because it really is so powerful and so meaningful. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and the feedback I've gotten is so wonderful. So thank you. It's time for Bob's Pearls. This powerful story and powerful retelling of the story is important for those of us who care for any patient who could benefit from palliative care. The biggest lesson that I received from this was a very explicit concept of trying to understand what is most important and most relevant to the patient as they're going through the palliative care process. Hearing Dr. Lawley explain the difficulties of being a patient that she knew but she didn't understand as well and how that impacts her ability to draw out those issues from her patients is a lesson that we all should try to learn from. I hope that you've gained a lot from listening to this podcast and we'd like to thank Dr. Lawley for sharing her story. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.